Welcome to Quiver Financial News and our second edition of Are Real Estate Prices Going to Crash in 2023? It's January of 2023, and it's hard to believe, but it's been a whole six months since our first edition discussing whether real estate prices are going to crash within the next year. And since that video in the summer, we certainly have witnessed some of the some structural changes that have slowed the upward progress that we've been seeing in real estate prices of the last few years. Rising interest rates have apparently pushed affordability to record extremes. At the same time, large industries like the tech sector have been announcing layoffs accumulating to hundreds of thousands of lost jobs. I'm Colby McFadden, and I'm joined by Justin Singletary and Patrick Moorhead. Gentlemen, welcome. Merry January. And let's jump right in and start talking about residential real estate prices. And let's do it with the intention of helping the listeners know what really matters, whether they're looking to be an investor, a buyer, or seller in this year of 2023 of residential real estate prices. So let's uh, let's get started by recapping what we had discussed back in uh, June and July, because Justin and Patrick, our timing was pretty damn good back then. Um, if you look at the data, and we're going to get into some of the data, folks, if you look at the data, um, really peak real estate prices were at that summertime, you know, the, between the third and fourth quarter of 2022. And uh, since then, we've definitely seen some softness. So before we uh, jump into what we discussed six months ago as a recap and frame what we're going to talk about next, uh, Justin, Patrick, anything you guys want to touch upon or should I just share my screen and jump right in there? I think the video will cover that. So yeah. we can just jump in. All right. Well, let's and do it. I think it, it's very February, not January. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to call them out on that. <laughs> hey, 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 I lost I lost my January to, you know, travel of funerals and COVID, well, as you know. He turned 50, so the dementia's kicking in. Well, I yeah, definitely, you know, I I, they, they said you know, a risk factor of COVID now is being over 50. And I'm starting to, after after having it for 10 days, I am starting to feel like I might have a little dementia. So bear with me because I've, uh, my face is pale and I got a piss poor attitude. That's for sure. That's why your hair is turning grayer too. <laughs> oh, geez. I was looking at, I was looking at our video from two years ago and uh, I realized, boy, am I aging fast? I need to, you know, get some vitamins in me or something. Jeez, the gray hair is enough. Um, maybe I should get some of that, um, um, gray for men. What is that? That, that, the stuff you can put in there and it just, just subtly for makes just for men. Thank you, Justin. I see you've been using it. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty sad that you know the name. Of that, Justin. <laughs> all right. So enough making fun of Colby and his hair. Um, all right. So last, uh, last June, July, we, we really had this conversation because we were getting a lot of questions from people about what do you think is going to happen in real estate? And most of the year, we shied away from the conversation of real estate because the fundamentals behind real estate are essentially employment and interest rates. And when you have low unemployment, when everybody's fully employed and interest rates are low, there's really no reason to expect real estate prices to go down. However, since that time frame, a lot has changed in both of those arenas. So we asked back in June and July, have the fundamentals around real estate pricing changed? Because we know that real estate pricing is focused around uh, interest rates and employment. 
But we did raise the question, is there another factor called Wall Street money? Um, the iBuyers, the short-term rentals, the, the build to rent that really started to happen post-pandemic um, does have an influence in certain markets. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later because we have a lot more data now than we did back in June and July about how those things have affected the market. Um, we talked about had real estate prices reached max affordability because of where interest rates were headed. Um, it does appear that since June, July of last year, that that may be the case because we see a slowdown in housing prices. We see a slowdown in new listings. When we get into the data, you're going to see that. So it was a really timely time. It was a really timely time to ask that particular question because it does look like we have reached that max affordability. And then does price volatility become regional? That was one of the concerns we talked about back in June and July is, are we going to see a national decline or will the national decline be so kind of moderate? And then we get really bad declines in certain hot areas like Phoenix and Boise, Idaho and places like that that got real hot with both speculator money and Wall Street money. And then what we talked about also is what should you consider? What should you consider if you're a buyer, a seller? or an investor in residential real estate. We're going to update that now with a lot of data um, and give you some guidance. If you're a young person like Justin and Patrick looking to buy a house to start a family, if you're an investor who is older in life, let's say you're in your 70s and you've owned multiple pieces of real estate and now you're trying to decide, do I keep it? Do I sell it? Do I pass it down to my family? We'll talk about that. Um, and if you're a new investor, if you want to continue to invest in real estate, is 2023 the year to make a purchase? Um, are real estate prices going to stabilize and go higher, or are they going to continue to crash? Um, those are all the things that we're going to talk about today. So, Justin, Patrick, a lot's happened since July. Um, and so here's here's the numbers, right? So the typical home is definitely taking longer to sell since April of 2020. Now, this is data that a lot of this data that we're going to go through came from articles that I grabbed from Redfin, Case Shiller, different, uh, different points of, of data. So definitely typical houses are taking longer to sell since April of 2020. Uh, Patrick, you threw this in here. This is a chart from the uh, Federal Reserve. What, what's it showing us there? So that's kind of the historical average of days on the market. So if you look, we've been kind of overall trend line declining to shorter and shorter days on the market. And it's very cyclical of going longer. You know, we just went through a winter time period, which is going to have an effect on days on market. But we are now just at the historical average. Do we shoot up to 100 days, 200 days on the market? I, I don't think so, but we could since we overshot so much to the bottom. But it, if you look, you got to look at the data for over the period, the history of the period to see that it's not that abnormal to where we're sitting for days on the market. Yeah, it looks like it's a reversion to the mean. And that's probably going to be more of today's conversation is how markets do revert back to the mean um, I think I've heard a lot of real estate people say that I think that 60-day marker is kind of like the line between buyer and seller market. Um, is that what you've heard or is that what you understand as well? I just think it's a, you know, that's typical contracts that people have with, you know, an agent. So after 60 days, if the house hasn't sold, you know, a lot of sellers maybe get annoyed and they'll pull from that listing agent and sure. and sit on the sidelines and relist potentially or reevaluate pull it off it. the market and reevaluate. 
Yeah, I've read a few articles that that's, you know, they, they, this, are you in a seller's market or are you in a buyer's market? There's really kind of determined by days on the market. And it's like, if, if houses are staying on the market less than, let's say 60 days, then the sellers are in control. And as you start to get to 90 days, 100 days, 120 days of houses sitting on the market, then it becomes more of a seller's, uh, I mean, uh, more of a buyer's controlled market. Um, this is national average as well, too. I mean, go back to our regional topic. This is drastically going to change to different areas in the U.S. economy to what, how long a property is on, you know, the market. Sure. Sure. All right. So, so definitely the 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 evidence and the data since uh, our last video is showing that houses are staying on the market longer. Um, pending home sales are at record lows, down thirty one percent year over year. Um, I thought that was a pretty telling, you know, little tale there. And you threw this chart in here, Patrick, um, which I think is just a visual of the same thing. Is that correct? For the most part, but it's showing that still 25% of the properties are going over asking. So, I mean, it's not, mm. you know, to, to list a property and then still get multiple offers to be able to sell over asking is still a 25% chance that that's going to happen. I think that's yeah. kind of telling in itself that we're not getting offers under asking or properties, you know, some are, some aren't, but I mean, it's again, reverting back to the historical average. Average. Yeah. Yeah, so softness, but uh, definitely, I, I don't think it would fall in the category of crash or uh, panic by any means whatsoever. It's just definitely soft. Um, new listings down 22% year over year. Um, and then, Patrick, you got something in here for us. Another so squiggly, another squiggly line. Kind of talking about housing starts. So new properties coming online. So mm -hmm new listings, new properties being listed, that type of stuff. This is mainly for new product development coming out. Um, but again, showing that it's reverting back to the mean. You know, we had a pretty good rise up from the bottom of COVID and now it's just coming back and we're historical average. We're, we're right on par for what we've been doing. So all the articles out there about home builders, you know, giving drastic discounts and all that type of stuff. Home builders are, are greedy. They over-anticipated, they overshot. So sure, they're going to have some properties that they're going to have to reduce the price on because they over-anticipated the demand that was potentially out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading articles of, uh, of home builders encouraging new sales by buying down mortgages. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. interesting where, you know, now if your mortgage is six and a half percent, they'll try and buy it down to three and yep. get your payment lower. So that's... Um, that's encouraging. And uh, so it's definitely an interesting time to be a home shopper, especially in the new home markets, because it's not often that you see these guys actually give deals. Um, housing supply is at 3.8 months versus 1.7 months in the summer. Um, so that's that's telling right there that obviously that um, houses are sitting on the market longer. Uh, more people have put some listings out there and they're sitting around. And um, prices need to find the right buyer is what it sounds like. So interesting. Um, I definitely think all this data is more soft than crash. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so let's dig into a little bit more. Yahoo Finance um, had an article out that I, I, I saved for us that really went over the Case-Shiller Home Index from June to October showed a 2.7 decline. Today, I saw an article come out that said that uh, from... July to November, it was a little bit over 3%. So it does seem that as the year has progressed, 
that uh, some of the softness in data um, in real estate data has increased. Um, the OC register had um, kind of one of those clickbait type of uh, headlines that said home buying froze in LA and Orange County uh, in November. Man, oh my God, it froze. Well, you know what they were talking about is the Orange County register said that plunging sales forty four percent to a record low. What they're talking about is in the month of December, which is typically a pretty bad month anyway for home sales because people are busy doing other things. Um, you did see a plunge in sales, um, not unexpected, but definitely was bigger than what we've seen in the uh, the records in the past. So it definitely tells you that people lost interest in speculating around real estate and probably the only people out there buying houses in November and December were the ones that actually absolutely have to have a house. Right. Um, OC Register also said it was the slowest November dating back to 1988. Well, you know, that's when it's probably when the Rams were a good team, too. So, <laughs> two, two things on all this data one, this is all OC, so it's regional. That and is two, true. That 2.7 to 3% decline, I think, has a direct correlation to the 3% increase that we had in interest rates. You know, if we didn't have that, I, I would like to know if we really had a 3%, would have had a 3% decline if interest rates hadn't gone up 3%. I, I don't I don't think we would have. I think interest rates are I think interest rates are the number one factor right now that have right slowed now. real estate down. I, I yeah. don't think the employment and the, the 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 new announcements of of layoffs over the last three months has really come through and affected um, the real estate market yet. And I and I think the Fed yesterday, when the Fed raised rates 25 bips and and Jay Powell did their their um their their press conference afterwards, I think it was really telling that that you know the Fed is 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 saying to us we haven't gotten there yet. You know we that we 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 haven't. They want to see the economy slow down. They'd love to do it without seeing the labor market break, but they're willing to allow the labor market to break. They you know they they need to bring inflation down. They need to get it sustainable. They need to get you guys. I mean the, there's a huge demographic issue going on that's not solved. We're underhoused. I mean the, the the bottom line is is the US is underhoused and the baby boomers are living longer and they're not getting rid of their houses. You know, they're sitting on those things and they're either giving them to their kids or they're dying with them. If they are getting rid of them, they're getting rid of them to pay for long-term care. Right. But that's that money's in still in sticky hands. And then you've got this millennial generation and, you know, guys like Justin that are getting married and, you know, you get married, you're going to have kids, you're going to have a house, dogs, all that stuff comes along. And so you have this ginormous, ginormous population of millennials coming into their 30s and 40s. And they're going to drive more demand in housing and they're going to drive more demand in speculation and in investing because they're going to need houses and they're going to need to make money and they're going to want to invest and they're going to want to make life like every other generation did. So yeah, I, mean, um, I, I, I was just going to say, ahead. I think that um, all of that's correct. However, you know, there's uh, not enough supply. You know, we there's definitely a demand for homes, but you know, we're not making as much to be able to afford the homes. speaking about our kind of local areas versus other areas. Um, so, you know, being able to afford a home and not having the wage that you were once getting or we, that you would need to afford a home like that, 
um, you know, I think is pretty important that we're not seeing that, <clears throat> excuse me, not seeing that either. Yeah. Well, to your point, Justin, like here, um, affordable, the average cost is up 31% over the past year that, and it was already high. Um, right. you know, a couple of weeks ago I was in Indiana and I got, you know, I'm sitting in Indianapolis at a bar and I'm re- looking around realizing everybody's young, everybody's in their thirties. Right. And, and I'm talking to everybody, you know, what do you do for a living? What do you, and I'm trying to get to understand the local community. And I thought, wow, what a great place to be a, uh, a real estate owner. You got all these young people who can rent from you. I thought, boy, do I want to be a landlord around here? There's jobs, there's they, they salt of the earth people. They seem to, you know, have their shit together. Um, so, you know, I go to Zillow and start looking around. And I mean, even in Indianapolis, the cheapest house I could find was 550, 600,000. And at today's mortgage rates, that means that those people in that bar I was sitting around would, their mortgages were going to be three grand a month. I, you know, that, that means you got to be making nine or 10 grand a month gross in order to really qualify for a $3,000 a month mortgage, right? Because, because your mortgage, your cost, your housing costs should be about a third of your income. So I, I, to your point, Justin, it, it makes it hard for me to believe that you guys in your generation even in places like Indiana that you yeah. think would be a $250,000 house is now 600. I, I saw $750,000 condos in Indianapolis, that, which was shocking to me. It's kind of just surprised me. But I had, I had that conversation with a client today that you look at the buyer pool, you know, granted there's how many people in the country, but probably only 10% of the country can even afford the real estate that's out there because most are living paycheck to paycheck. So they don't have the savings to be able to even buy a hundred thousand dollar home. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely, I, I definitely think that, um, and when we get to, in a couple minutes, when we get into the conversation about wall street money and speculation, I definitely think we're setting ourselves up for a 1999 type of situation, which was, at the end of 1999, when Barney Frank was running the Senate um, and the Democrats had control of things, um, every constituent out there was calling up their senator talking about the wealth gap and not being able to afford homes. And that's when they changed a lot of the lending standards. Uh, everything that set up the, the 08 bubble, you know, everything that set up that housing bubble from 03 to 07. Um, really got teed up in 1999 on the back of people not being able to afford. So I do think we're going to see that again, but it's going to be a more, more Gestapo style where I think governments are going to have to start to come in and regulate certain areas of real estate and get speculator money out in order to bring prices down. Um, because when you look at here, here's what's happened in prices regionally since we had our last conversation back in the summertime. The year-over-year national average has not gone down all that much. It hasn't gone down at all, really, according to this. Um, And I've seen numbers that have ranged from the national average being down 2% to being up 1%. So obviously, on a national level, prices have softened or at least plateaued, but they haven't dropped off a cliff. San Francisco has seen the biggest decline. Makes sense, considering that most of the layoffs that we're seeing are from the tech sector. Um, so it's down 11.4%. But uh, Patrick, you made a note here. Yeah, but who cares? It's still up 31% from 2020. 
Right. Well, that was to the peak. Yeah, from from 2020 to the peak, it was up 31%. So we've only pulled back a little less than half. So yeah, okay. So so it's helpful, but not great. Um, Los Angeles down 3%, San Diego down 2 Vegas down 2 um, I will say some of the data I'm seeing in Vegas recently seems like things are speeding up there. Um, Austin down four, again, an area with a little more tech presence. Um, Boise down 3%, Phoenix down 1.4. At all these numbers, the one that actually for, surprises me is Phoenix. I thought Phoenix would be down more. Um, you know, I, I thought when we did this video back in June and July, knowing that we'd follow up to it, I really was thinking that Phoenix would be down double digits by now. But um, for whatever reason, they've been able to hold hold the ground. I thought that Vegas, you know, and again, I didn't put all the data on all of these to what they're up at, but I thought Vegas would have been down a lot more because they're, you know, booming with development and expansion and all that type of stuff. So I thought all the new home builders would have hit that area a, hot, a lot harder. I know the Phoenix data, they're, they're short supply in houses big time. So that might be part of the reason for, for Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix. I think it's a lot of retirees moving in there. You got colleges. Oh, you got yeah. yeah. You got you got a lot of young California people going. You know, I think it just it just becomes one of those places that if you're a young person or a retiree and you don't want to go to Palm Springs or Vegas, I think you end up going to Phoenix. Yeah. You know, um, we should have put Houston, Texas, up here for Justin. It would be interesting. I'll I'll, I'll do you some homework on that. So uh, pending home sales. So, you know, one leads into the other, right? Where, where, you know, before prices really come down, you start to see the numbers in other areas. Pending home sales is, tends to be one of those. You need to see pending home sales. You know, the, these numbers get really fat before prices start to decline. Um, we're starting to see that the national average on pending home sales down 31%. Um, San Francisco, you've seen a big drop off in people pissed, uh, li uh, listing their homes down 44%. Same with Los Angeles and San Diego, Vegas, 61, Austin, 55, Boise and Phoenix in the mid 50s. So you can definitely see that um, these areas um, that we've talked about, the Boise's, the Austin's, the Phoenix's, um, from a pending home sales, you've seen a, a drop off a cliff. I mean, when you're when you're dropping 40, 50 percent, that's pretty significant. Um, granted, they're coming off of elevated numbers, but nonetheless, it's a good example of what we call reversion to the mean, where uh, markets just don't go in one direction. And some of that, I think, is headlines. You know, people selling that are selling their homes because they want to take advantage of top dollar are now thinking that, OK, prices are going to drop. I'm going to wait. I'm just going to ride it out. I don't need to sell. Yeah, you know, that has a little bit of effect. Yeah, I'd imagine if you were somebody who wanted to sell uh, five months ago and you're not forced to sell, that now yeah. you just you know you say, okay, I'll wait um, yeah. and and see what happens later. I mean, because if you don't need to sell, why would you? Um, unless you're just unless you're trading up for another property, which when interest rates rise like they have, the trade up gets killed, right? Because nobody nobody who uh, I just talked to somebody yesterday and they go, yeah, my mortgage is three and a half percent. Um, well now if they want to get a new house, they got to get rid of a three and a half percent and go get a six and a half percent and chances they're not going to do that because now they're going to have to get a smaller house or a cheaper house to offset the difference in rates. And I don't know anybody who makes moves that way, unless you're doing it in your retirement years. Um, right. most, most people are making a trade up, not a trade down. Yeah. 
So this is the thing that um, that I know, Patrick, you, you were saying earlier uh, when we talked and prepared for this, that you're like, yeah, I don't know if this is a great subject matter, you know, the, the short term rentals and the Airbnbs, because, you know, how how, how much do they affect the market? Um, and I, I was thinking that way back in June and July as well. Like I was thinking how, you know, we didn't have a lot of data, but now I'm starting to see a lot more about this. And, and I think this is what gets society moving and forcing, like I talked about what happened in 99, when people started reaching out to their senators and, and Congress people saying, Hey, this wealth gap is killing me. My kids can't afford to live in the neighborhood that we grew up in. Um, I can't even afford to live in it anymore. And a good example is between Christmas and New Year's, I rented a house down in Oceanside right on the beach. And for a mile stretch, South Oceanside, I would tell you 50, 60% of the houses are short-term rentals. I was amazed as I walked, walked down the street how many permits were on every single house. And the place I rented was five units. All five units were Airbnb or short-term rentals, which you know, five or six years ago, that was five units was, you know, uh, a guy and his girlfriend renting a place, two roommates, maybe a couple that was newly married and they're on year leases or whatever it may be. Now all that's been replaced with people who are just coming in for the weekend, having a good time. Where do those people go? You know, where now do they have to go move to Vista to, to Fallbrook? Do they, you know, where, where do those people go? Um, so I've been paying real close attention to what's going on in this Airbnb and short-term rental space and, and big pockets rental. I don't know who the hell they are, but they, they came up in my research, but they had something that just talked about Vaca rentals, which is the, one of the largest short-term rental companies. They just laid off a bunch of people, but Vaca rentals are no longer generating the revenue investors expect. Um, basically their margins have gotten tight and I keep reading that you know, the, the, the nights of stays at Airbnbs have really dropped off. You can, you can go to a thing called AirDNA, which has all the stats around Airbnbs and VRBOs. Um, again, from big, big pocket rentals, uh, they, they, showed, they gave an example of a lady by the name of Sabrina who once rented her condo in Encinitas for $1,000 a night on a, on a holiday. Um, now she's having to ask $275 a night. So, um, they're just basically stating that there's been softness in the short-term rental market. Um, that probably is due to people's expenses, right? Everything's more expensive. Maybe people are taking less vacations. Um, I'm not sure what it is, right? But uh, AirDNA said Airbnb occupancy rates um, exhibited year-over-year declines. Um, and again, from AirDNA, supply of Airbnb listings has surged 23.3% year-over-year. So when I put all this together is you got a, a decline in demand and you have an increase in supply, because I will tell you, I have come across a lot of people the last two years who've told me some silly shit like, oh, yeah, you know what? I had a house in Midtown. I had a house in downtown Ventura that I was in the Airbnb zone. So I mortgaged myself up, bought a house in Midtown, moved over there, rented out my Airbnb place. And the price I've been getting from my Airbnb is enough to pay both mortgages. So like <clears throat> that guy, I think is at risk, right? Like I think it's that, if you leveraged up your home to go speculate on an Airbnb, then yeah, maybe that person is at risk that if the market turns on them and their Airbnb can't produce the income that they're going to have to get rid of it. 
Um, I just don't know how many people are in that position. I think most of the people with Airbnbs have bought them with cash or they're in pretty good financial stability, but we'll see. Um, you know, like Warren Buffett said, you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And so if the economy does slow down enough and people stop going to Airbnbs like we're seeing in this data and this continues for a longer period of time, then you might start to see some of these people who speculated, um, you know, the starting to get nervous and starting to unload. What so do, do go back for yeah, a slide you, for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Where are you going here? <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> the uh, the reason why I say that I don't think overall for the real estate market this is going to have an effect is do I think that Airbnb rentals and like you said the people that invested in it are speculating things they're going to get hammered? Yes. The your last point there of supply has surged. So of course, if you have more supply, it's going to be harder for somebody who has had it for a while to get it if somebody opens up an Airbnb down the street and offers a yep. cheaper price. So that has impact on, on the price. But Airbnb, if you think about it, it's mainly the smile states or the big cities, which yep. is such a small percentage of the overall real estate. You're in Indiana. How many Airbnbs do you think are in Indiana? You know, who wants to go there to for vacation or to rent or to think to do an Airbnb? I'm sure there's some, but not near as many as they're in the OC. So yeah. I just don't think it's going to have, even if they crash and people liquidate those properties, is it going to have an effect? Yes. Is it going to cause a snowball? I just, I personally don't see that being a factor when it's such a small portion of, of people. Are people going to get hammered for buying a property to Airbnb? It? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it definitely does not seem like the time to speculate. Like, like it, it doesn't seem like the time to be a new Airbnb buyer and try and no. do what people were doing the last few years. But I'm not sure if it is the tipping point that causes the market to crash. I think all I think you need all these things to happen at once, which I don't think is is reality at this stage. Um, yeah, so I it's think you're. I think you're right, Patrick, um, in that sense. Um, and I would just say that with Airbnbs, you know, you've got um you know they're for and to your point too colby i think there is a decent number we won't know until something actually sh you know shows itself or the tide goes out but i think there's a lot of people that are highly leveraged for these things um i think they're going to be in big trouble because i've noticed that at least in the states where they are pretty predominant most of the uh housing complexes that have hoas are shutting them down number one um, I just read an article today that insurance is now charging double, if not triple, to the people who own Airbnbs because now they have realized that their you know, liabilities are a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, so somebody that was paying you know, $1,000 for insurance or whatever you know, is paying double, triple that now. So it doesn't, I think all of the things that everybody you know, three, four years ago you know, thought was a great investment is starting to slowly slip away in some sense. Um, it's going to become harder and harder. And I mean, all over here, at least in Orange County, I've noticed that the Airbnb market is drying up because of the HOAs. They're shutting them down completely. You know, yeah. so it's the only in areas where they don't have any HOAs that they're still able to do it. Yeah. And I've, I've seen two articles that go to the, the side of, you know, people bitching and moaning about things getting too expensive. Um, and one of them so focused around New York that there's, I don't, I don't know if they've passed this or if it's proposed. So, so you'll have to do your own homework on this. But the idea was 
if you wanted to offer an Airbnb, a short-term rental, that you had to live on premise, which I could see that starting to be a trend. And, uh, and I saw something in New Orleans proposing the same thing. And so the attitude there is, hey, if you are living in your home and you have a room you want to rent out, by all means, you have every right to. But what they're trying to eliminate is the people buying a house or an apartment in New York, which is already <clears throat> you know, under housed, um, and just turning it into a rental purely just for that fact. So they're making these rules of, hey, if you're going to be do short-term rentals, you got to live on premise. Um, so I could see where that's going to be kind become a, a bigger trend in certain metropolitan areas that that you know want to control this a little bit more. So I think that'd be a really interesting thing to watch as time progresses. Um, and that would and be a huge hit to own it, you know, because people that rent an Airbnb they don't want to be sharing, you know. So that's going to be a huge huge hit to the people renting. So yeah, it's a very clever way from a regulation standpoint to really snuff something out, right? Because yeah. it's like you don't kill it, you don't, you don't, you don't ban it, but you just now yeah. make it totally different than it was. It's like now, now if you want to run an Airbnb, you almost have to like run a bed and breakfast because like yeah. you got to be either check them in, check them out, that kind of stuff. So um, very interesting. It definitely shifts and changes. None of these things support more speculation. I think that's really the point that people should get is that that with the rise in interest rates, the softness in employment that seems to be happening, and the changes around regulations um, and Wall Street money kind of moving away from speculating in real estate definitely does not support real estate prices climbing at 20% clips per year like they were before, right? So so I de you can definitely see these are all things as a result of the Fed trying to slow down the economy, it's starting to slow. So what do you do, right? Like, what do you do? If you're, if you're a guy like Justin, who's, you know, approaching a time in life where marriage and, and, and buying houses and things like that are part of it, um, or even a guy like me who would like to add another house into his portfolio as an investment property, what do you do? Um, and I think back to what we talked about in June and July still works. We talked about a recipe of, hey, go look at what prices were at 2019 pre-pandemic and use that as your baseline. Um, because I think, Patrick, you said earlier that you know even where we are now, we're still what, like 30% above these 2019 prices? Yeah, we'd have to we would have to drop 15 to 18 percent in order to just get back to our regional average of growing six percent a year. OK, so so you, you <clears throat> could see. So the market would need to come down another 20 percent for us to really, you know, use, let's say, 2019 as a baseline plus five, six percent growth per year beyond that. And I think that's a good recipe. Like if I'm if I'm going to put an offer on a house, that's probably where I'm going to go is I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to erase the last two or three years, pretend it never happened, throw my offer there, see what happens. Um, so I think if you're if you're um, a person who needs a house, like you know you're going to be renting anyway, um, and you're going to be renting for many years, and you need a house, then yeah, you got to be out there shopping. But I think you you lowball your offers here, right? And and you and you don't let your realtor scare you into chasing things. Um, yeah. If we, I tell all buyers, if, if you're buying a primary residence, 
think of it as a liability, not an asset. Your primary residence is a liability until you go to sell it, then it becomes an asset. So you have to go in with that mentality, like you said at the beginning, that you know, if you're going to be in it for 10, 15 years, that's the liability aspect of it. It's when you go out, it's yeah. the asset. Yeah. Every house I've ever bought, I bought with the attitude of, hey, if I needed to sit on this thing for 10, 15 years, could I? Um, if I needed to sit on it, could I rent it for what my costs are? Um, and I, I've never, I, I just was never one that was a believer that you buy and sell and speculate. I know a lot of people do, and I'm uh, God bless them, um, but I'm just not that guy. Um, yeah. You know, so, and, and I also think though, too, if you're a younger person, that this does become one of those times, you know, Justin, you had mentioned about affordability and things. I, you know, I, I tell this story all the time. I, you know, my, my, kid, my parents were California kids. You know, they went to Wilson High School in Long Beach. That's where they met. And uh, I was born in Kentucky. My brother was born in Pennsylvania. And then we grew up in California. How did that happen? Well, you know, as my parents were squeezing out babies and my dad had to find jobs. And so he went to where the jobs were. And so the first job that paid him well was Pennsylvania. I had my brother. You know, then he got a job transfer to Kentucky because it paid more. He had me. Then he got another job transfer back to California because the job paid more. You know, he just he went to where the money was. And um, I think that's no different for this generation. The, the problem with this generation now is they're so used to being able to do everything electronically. Like everybody's gotten into this attitude of, hey, I'll just work from home. I don't need to move anywhere. Um, but I don't think that's going to work in the next 10 years. I think people are going to have to do um, what other generations have done. And, and if they really want to own a home, they're going to have to move to make it happen. Um, if you're an investor, so let's say, let's take this from the other angle. Let's say you're, let's say you're in your seventies and you have a handful of houses that you rent out. And now you're getting to the point where you're tired of being the landlord. You're tired of getting the phone call for the, for the leaky toilet or the, the, the broken water heater, whatever it may be. Well, this is probably the time there now where you step back and you start to say, what, what do I unload? What, what underperforming properties do I get rid of to make my life easier? Um, and you do that while prices are pretty stable um, at this stage. Because even if you're a seller now, you're still getting a good price relative to history. Um, and if you're an investor that is you know, on the other side where you're saying, hey, I want to add more houses to my portfolio, or I want to start a portfolio of investment properties, I would say you got to keep your powder dry because the data that's coming in seems to be getting worse. And after I watched yesterday's press conference with Jay Powell, it's obvious that the, the Fed is not done here. They, 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 they've slowed the economy enough, but they haven't gotten it to where they need to. So I don't believe that we're done with interest rates going higher. Um, we might be there for a couple months, but I if this economy doesn't go into recession and doesn't slow down significantly by the summertime, um, I think by fall, you could see the Fed kind of repositioning to continue to raise rates. And if that happens, then I think that next leg would really now start to kind of break the back of real estate and, and maybe people have a, a better opportunity. My, my big concern, is I always thought, you know, if interest rates rise, that real estate prices were really going to go down. But, you know, when I look at charts of real estate prices in the 70s, which was a period of time, the whole 10 years of the 70s, 
you had relentless rising rates. But if you notice, you know, the prices of real estate never crashed in the 70s. It just had this gradual increase every year. Um, so going off of the thesis that interest rates will kill the real estate market, that doesn't seem to be the case when you look at the 70s. Um, but, I don't know if that's a good comparison. No, and because when, when you look at the difference between the 70s and now, I mean, when they were raising rates in the 70s, jet to, debt to GDP was 30%. When you look at debt to GDP now, we're 130%. So we're in a new all-time, you know, never before experienced situation. And one of the other aspects of that you, you should always consider when buying a home is date the rate, marry the mortgage. You know, the, the, the rates are going to change. You can refinance, all that type of stuff. You're stuck with that 30-year mortgage. So you're, you got to be, be with it for the long haul. So date the rate. Yeah, got it. Yeah, sure. Sure. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You bring up a good point is, is, is our debt levels as a country are different. So how does that factor in? And that's something that we should probably think through and use as a follow-up for later in the year when we get more data on this. Anything else you guys want to cover before we wrap it up for everybody? I mean, I'm good. I would just say buyers, be patient. Sellers, like you said, Colby, now's the time you're probably not going to get a better price than you would. You know, I mean, we're still 15, 18% above where we were a few years ago. Um, investor, I think people that are investing in multifamily, those are good investments still. People are still renting. Mm -hmm. um, storage units, I think, is still a good place. I would be wary of the Airbnb type of investment at this point, personally. Um, and like you said, the dry powder, I think that's important right now, being patient to buy, because you know, I think all the data is giving us the clues that um, you know, better opportunities could be on the horizon. Yeah. And you brought up a good point of people are still renting. I mean, rental rates haven't really, you know, they've started to kind of peter out and not increase anymore. But if you look at, again, the historical data, even through 2008, rental prices did not waver and they just kept going up. So, yeah. I mean, people are still renting. It's because we're under supply. Yeah. That's still going to be a target. Yeah. yeah no, one I, thing we didn't really touch on was that, uh, you know, is that kind of that new thing that's popping up I've seen lately is that these homeowner home construction companies are building these housing complexes that are built to rent. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of interesting because I'm like, if you build them to rent, that's great. Everybody, you know, the, the people that own those homes win, assuming they can rent them all out. And I guess to me, on the flip side, if they can't rent them out, they could just turn around and sell them, right? I mean, wouldn't that be the... Yeah, know? yeah, that's the attitude of the, the Wall Street money because what's happened there is you have a lot of family office money, a lot of private equity money that has now gone in to this area of, of uh, build to rent, you know, you build a community um, and you're, 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 they're basically lease options to buy. So each person that comes in, they're renting with the option to buy the house. Um, most of what I've read, and I haven't gone into this detail, but like in most things in life, it's kind of like leasing a car. It's not all that great. It's like, it's like, it's convenient and easy. But, you know, if you think about if, if if some guys from Wall Street are going to set it up, they're definitely going to set the contract and everything in their favor. Um, so I think if you're somebody who's young and that's the only way that you can get started is to do a lease to buy option through one of those. 
then you just got to pay attention to the contract and pay attention to the terms of the deal and be a good consumer. Um, I'm afraid on these uh, build to rent communities, what I'm afraid of is, is are there, are there practices that are taking advantage of, of people that don't know any better? Um, you know, is it a bad deal? You know, which I'm sure is going to happen. It always does. But that, that I, I really, where you see a lot of that has been in Phoenix and Idaho and places like that. Um, it's just, um, it hasn't become a really big part of the market yet, but I do think it becomes more popular as time progresses and people need an alternative to finding um, a lower cost house for sure. Well, I think, you know, uh, we can wrap it up and I'll tell you what, you know, if, if you've got a 401k or retirement account, one of the things people don't know about is one of the ways you can optimize your 401k and your retirement account is if you have the right type of 401k or retirement account, you sometimes can put alternative investments like real estate inside your IRA. Now, there's all kinds of rules and all kinds of ways to do it right and wrong. Uh, but if you're curious to know how you can optimize your retirement portfolio and include real estate within it, then reach out to us because we're offering a free portfolio analysis for the first five people who reach out to us. It's a $1,200 value because um, we dig deep into the portfolio and give you the best ideas of how to optimize your retirement so you can retire a little bit earlier. So gentlemen, let's wrap it up. And uh, like you said, it's not January, it's February now. And I appreciate your guys' time. And we want to wish everybody a happy February and a good uh, Valentine's Day coming up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See you guys all. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's how we're going to end that video. <laughs> yep. That's how that ends. <laughs> the creepy man with the blue screen. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey.